We have had three sermons on godliness in the last three weeks, and this is the fourth one, and perhaps the last one from 1 Timothy 4. And we've been on the theme of disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness. And this morning, I'd like us to go to 1 Timothy 4, verses 15 and 16. And this is part of the instruction Timothy is given by Paul in disciplining himself for godliness. And I want to read from the King James Version because of the way the words are said. The particular words that are used fit with the theme. They certainly fit with the Greek words in the New Testament, but they certainly fit also with the theme specifically of doctrine and discipline. Paul says to Timothy in verse 15, Meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that thy profiting may appear to all. And verse 16, Take heed unto thyself and unto unto the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Paul warns Timothy in this verse to take heed to himself and to the doctrine. Timothy, he says, your behavior is an area over which the battle is waged. We've been talking about the spiritual battle that is a part of living lives of godliness. Your behavior is an area over which the battle is raged. Timothy, the doctrine you teach is something over which the battle is waged. Take a heed. Have a care. Watch out. Paul lists these two things out separately. But as I read it, I thought to myself, and you might think to yourself, are they really inseparable, this idea of his life, his behavior, and his doctrine. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, don't we always behave in accordance with what we truly believe? Don't our, doesn't our profession always match our actions? Well, the answer would be yes if there was no such thing as an evil heart, if there were no such thing as hypocrisy, but there are evil hearts and there are hypocrites. As it is, there are many ways that we conform our doctrine to our behavior, Or we justify our behavior to make it inconsistent with doctrine. A couple of ways we can look at this. There are times when we try to massage doctrine to accommodate our sin. Sometimes we try to massage doctrine to accommodate our sin. There are people who may confess to be a Christian, but they're unwilling to give up perhaps the sin of fornication. So then when they read their Bible, they might conveniently skip over the verses that have to do with sexual immorality. And so their personalized or customized theology becomes one that that omits those kinds of verses. Or if they're maybe they're very sophisticated and they'll take uh, all the texts in Scripture dealing with sexual immorality and they'll massage them. And they'll show through the massaging of them how the claims of those verses and the application of those verses doesn't doesn't really apply to them. Doesn't really apply to their behavior. For instance, someone might say, Well, the fornication talked about in the biblical times is not what I practice. Then that fornication meant having non-consensual sexual activity, non-consensual sexual activity with slaves. That's what that was talking about. But that's not my behavior, and so what I do is not sin. It's not immoral. It's it's not really that fornication is talked about in the Bible. And if you think that what I've created here by saying this as an illustration is some kind of uh, straw example, straw man example of what people might say in their in their attempt to manipulate, and manipulate their doctrine to fit their lifestyle. 
uh, I will tell you that it's mild compared to what people's wicked hearts are really capable of doing. And if you know this, and you know these kinds of subjects, you know that that's absolutely true. We are capable, capable of manipulating the Scripture to make it fit our wicked lifestyles and behavior. Another thing we could do is just to promote a doctrine on the face of our lives while at the same time living something very different in secret. And we've all seen examples of this in the past, maybe in some ministry of a preacher who was a, a great orator, known for his preaching and known for his doctrinal commitments even. And then suddenly it's found out that this man has had an affair of many years. And he has a private secret life that's just inconsistent with the doctrine that he promotes. Well, Paul is well aware of the connection between what someone believes and how he behaves. He's also aware that we're capable of offering to others the one true doctrine while exempting ourselves from its implications. But he says to Timothy, take heed to yourself, your personal behavior, including how you might sinfully exempt yourself from God's demands, and take heed to the doctrine, the body of truth which is outside of you, that you are to guard and to instruct others in. Be careful of your actions and your instructions. They should be in agreement. Timothy, they should be in agreement. I want to talk for a minute about each of these areas, taking heed of yourself and taking heed of the doctrine. And I want to talk about them in terms of trying to get them down to our, to our lives and to, uh, to very specific things in our lives that we have to deal with and as we monitor our behavior and as we monitor the doctrine that we're responsible for and responsible to. It's interesting in, in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, in verse 12, just above the verse that we read, Paul says, Let no one look down on you for your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. Paul tells Timothy, don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. Now, a kind of a side note here to the young men who are present. Timothy was apparently a young man. And we often get involved in questions. Sometimes the elders talk about questions about when a young man can take a a role of responsibility in the church, when we'll allow them to do that. And we get mired down quite often in the question of how we're going to uh, get the young man to become authoritative among people who may be his peers or who may be older than he is. But I want to point out to you, especially to you young man, men here this morning, that this verse has a hinge in the middle. It says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youthfulness, but rather... There's a hinge in the middle and it changes to what other people are doing to what you should do. And then he lists the five things that Timothy is supposed to watch out for. Your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity. Showing yourself as an example to those who believe. Now how would Paul see that today as if he were talking to Timothy about his speech? There are many times in, in First and even Second Timothy where Paul uh, warns Timothy against vain talk, vain chatter. But as we look at our lives and we look at the things that we're involved in, what does vain speech or what does ungodly speech look like? What is it? What is ungodly speech? Well, maybe some of the things you can think of right away would be what is called coarse jesting, where you're in a situation, perhaps at work with some people around the water cooler or maybe in, uh, in a store where you work or somewhere where you are with some friends having a party and somebody starts to tell a 
uh, a jest, a joke that's off color. And it's an opportunity for you either to excuse yourself or to participate. And sometimes we participate and sometimes we do more than listen. Sometimes we're the one that are, that's offering the coarse jest. This is ungodly speech. What about vain use of God's name? I have conversations sometimes with my, my uh, relatives, my nieces and nephews about this. One time got into a very heated discussion about, about, uh, with one uh, nephew's wife. Uh, she was talking to me about something and she kept using the, um, uh, the little slang word for God. You know what I'm talking about? Where people say gosh and golly and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I said to her, I said, you know something, it's what you're doing here is you're just intimating the real word that people say all the time when they use his name in vain. And that's what people think of when you say it. That's what a lot of people hear when you say it. But it's really speech that is vain use of God's name. Now, you might think I'm splitting it hairs, but God is holy and He is completely honorable. And His name is, we are instructed, commanded to honor, to venerate, to, to keep His name as holy in our lives. And even when we give little intimations of His name in our speech, we violate that sanctity. We violate that holiness. Even in those little vain intimations, those little kind of, kind of God's name words. This is how holy God is. This is how holy He is before us. And our, and our speech should be godly. There's disrespectful speech. Uh, we sometimes in our little groups of people as we're talking about somebody, we start talking about authority and we start to speak disrespectfully of authority. We're rebellious against authority. And you know, you think about this, as, is this just young people? Or is just, are these uh, people who are disrespectful of authority, are they just professors at IU? Or are sometimes adults disrespectful of authority? Do sometimes you catch yourself in talking to your wife or in front of your children about authority saying things that ought not to be said because they harbor, they, they carry disrespect for the authority that God has put in place. Another type of unguarded speech I'm going to call verbal cannibalism. Okay? I don't know what else to call it. What do I mean by that? Well, do you with your words chew on others behind their backs with, with evil and murderous words? If you devour others behind their backs with your speech, it's, it's, it's evil, it's murderous. If you do this in front of your spouse, you can make your spouse have this appetite for this verbal cannibalism. If you do it in front of your children, your children will certainly develop an appetite for verbal cannibalism. And the unfortunate thing about your children is that the disdain that you will show in private in your home, they will, they will show in public with the person that they disdain. They have learned to disdain. This verbal cannibalism that we do in our speech, it's ungodly. Sometimes we have proud speech. 
Have you ever had those potato chips? I used to work for a chip company. Have you ever had those potato chips that are fried in the oil, that it's synthetic oil developed by Procter & Gamble? You know what I'm talking about? Olean or Olestra or I don't know, Oleo or something, I don't know. Anyway, you eat those chips, and what happens after you've eaten a handful of those chips? You have this film in your mouth. It's like melted wax. It's awful, awful stuff. It's not pleasant. Sometimes when I'm having a conversation with somebody, I will say things, and as, I, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I can feel this coating of pride on them. I just feel it as it comes right out of my mouth, this, this pride. And it has that taste right away. And I think to myself, oh, I wish I could get those words back. I wish I could unpush the send button on that email. But then it's too late. Sometimes we're worse than that. We don't even wish we could have the words back. Sometimes we say things to excuse ourselves like, well, you know, if you've really got the goods, it's not really bragging. Right? Have you heard someone say that before? If you've got the goods, it's not really bragging. Romans 12.3 says, For the grace... For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. It's okay to develop a taste for the coating of synthetic potato chips, but don't develop a taste for proudly spoken words. They will destroy you. How about murmuring speech? Murmuring speech. I once heard a pastor who was talking about, uh, he was going to preach a sermon. He said, I'm going to preach a sermon about the four-letter word, murmur. And of course, he was trying to say, it's an evil thing to murmur. It's an awful thing. But of course, murmur has six letters. Unless you use the, the Hebrew spelling that doesn't have vowels. Then it's murmur. Which, of course, the word then sounds like what it is. It sounds like what happens when we are murmuring. A murmur is what? Well, it's, it's not a, a bona fide, clearly expressed complaint, but it's a barely audible, yet somehow fully comprehensible expression of our displeasure, isn't it? Murmur, murmur. It's ungodly. It's ungodly. Why is it a sin to be a murmurer? Well, because it's dishonest. And it's usually accompanied by pride, or maybe it's accompanied by pride in the form of false humility. How is our speech to be? Our speech is supposed to be godly speech. Godly speech that brings glory to God and that will help others to move forward. There was a pastor in the 1600s named Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach was like John Bunyan. He was arrested for, uh, uh, for preaching, for writing religious... I think, I think he was arrested once specifically for writing a catechism for children. And so he was put in jail. He ended up going and being put in the stocks in the, in the public square. And he had a godly, godly wife. And she would actually come out while he was in the stocks and stand beside him and just stand by her husband and defend him as he's hanging in the stocks as the hangman is building, is building a, a pyre to, build, to burn his books, to burn his catechism. 
in the public square. But it's said of his wife that she was of a heavenly conversation. Her name was Jane. She was of a heavenly conversation. Her discourse was savory and for the most part about spiritual things, seeking the good of those she talked with. And in this she was so successful that many have acknowledged that they were indebted to her conversation for their conversion to God. Paul says to Timothy, watch your speech. We need to watch our speech and have godly speech. He says, watch your conduct. He says, certainly your conversation is part of your conduct, but there is much more. We have everyday mannerisms that betray our hearts. Everyday mannerisms that betray our sinful hearts. Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How is this seen in our lives when we're around people and our mannerisms and the, the places we take and how we expect people to treat us? You know, everything we do in our lives, every movement of our eyebrows and our, and our twitch of our face, and, you know, you, know you, you, you hear parents say this to their children, well, don't look at me with that tone of voice, right? Everything about us communicates things to people. And are we communicating to people that we are so much better than you are? We are better than you. You should defer to us. You should open the door for us. We should have the better seat. Or do we prefer one another? What do our mannerisms show in godliness as we walk and live in front of people? Godly conduct. It was something that the church understood in the time Paul was writing to Timothy. They talk about conduct. They talk about conduct. They understood there to be a code of conduct in the church among believers that was godly that showed people Jesus Christ, that demonstrated God's character. Paul says to Timothy in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. There is a godly conduct. There are places you can go to to see this conduct in the church listed. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you'll see a whole list of of things that we should go to, to godly conduct. He says, encourage one another, build one another up. Appreciate those who labor among you. Esteem them. Live at peace with one another. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil for evil. Seek, that that which, seek for that which is good for all the people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. You can find another list in Philippians 4. How do we measure up to these simple codes of Christian conduct in our lives? If someone takes the parking space we have our eye on, what do we do? Again, it's just that little thing, isn't it? But our children see it. Our spouse sees it. Maybe the person we're driving with sees it. Maybe the... Maybe the person in the other car sees it. When we're at the church picnic and we sit down at the table with someone who is faint-hearted and weak and they start telling us about their faintness and they tell us about their weakness, do we stop and listen 
and try to build them up or do we take the quickest opportunity we can to find a table somewhere else at the picnic where there's somebody who's happy and who's going to tell us an amusing anecdote so that we'll have a good day. Conduct. Conduct. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Not hold fast to that which makes you feel good. Hold fast to that which is good. He says, watch your speech, watch your conduct, watch your love. And I'm not going to go into love this morning. I'll just read John 13:34. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you. So you also love one another. Timothy, take heed. Be careful for your love. Faith. There are a lot of places in the Scripture you could go to talk about faith. The one that come to my, came to my mind quickly was the parable Jesus tells about the woman who is he's talking about prayer. And Tim actually this morning in his prayer was confessing our lack of prayer to the Lord. And Jesus is talking about a woman who needs something, needs justice. And so she goes to a judge and the judge doesn't care, doesn't feel God, fear God, he doesn't care about justice. But this woman keeps coming to him and coming to him and coming to him and and finally, the judge is just exasperated over the fact that she won't leave him alone. So just because of her repetitions in, in coming to him, he finally listens to her and does something for her. And Jesus says, even an unjust, ungod-fearing judge will do this. But you have a heavenly Father who wants you to come and pray to Him, who wants you to come and ask for what you need so that He can give it to you and give you all things that you need. And then he says this, just this one line that's just unsettling. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? He was talking about having the faith to pray. And when he gets done with the parable, he says, when I come to get my church, will I find faith on the earth? Will anybody be praying? Will anybody be seeking God? You may have faith to move mountains and still not have faith to pray. You may be confident enough to run a corporation, manage a business, get a Ph.D., homeschool, run a household, or build bigger barns because of your success. But, be, but what Jesus wants to know is when He comes, will He find you trusting God and pleading with Him to supply your every need. Will you be praying and dependent on God? Will we be that way? Do we pray? Do you pray? If your wife comes to you distraught over the behavior of your children, do you A, tell her what she's doing wrong? B, throw up your hands in resignation and go hide in the den? Or C, do you humble yourself, bow your head, and plead with God to make you and your wife godly parents and to bring godliness into the lives of your children? Do you pray? Do you stop and think to pray in your life privately? Not just privately, but the church has to pray as well. This past week, Wayne Huck went to uh, 
National Spelling Bee competition with his son Elliot. And Wayne is always faithful to pray on the Friday morning prayer. But church, it's a sad thing when Wayne Huck goes and isn't at prayer and 50% of the Friday morning average is gone. We have to pray. As a church, we have to pray. We have to seek God. We can get by. We can play church. But the real battle has to be done with prayer. If we're really fighting, we have to be seeking God and praying and asking and pleading with Him. He is willing to give to us. He is waiting to give to us. But He's not looking for people who are proud and assuming. He's looking for a humble, humble church that will come to Him and request prayer, request their needs of Him. Our church has to pray. Paul says to Timothy, you have to have faith. Faith is a necessity for prayer. Finally, he says, watch your purity. And this has to do with activities that sully us, that dirty us, that defile us. It's really talking about the fight against fleshly temptations that come our way. If we're going to be godly people, how do we fight against these fleshly temptations? Where is the fight fought? Where does this happen? Well, it happens in the checkout line at Kroger, men, when you see all the flesh in the magazines. That's where the fight happens. That's one of the places. Do you use that as an opportunity for, for your lust or do you, do you look to God in prayer and say, God, help me. Turn my face so that I'm not... This, I'm not tempted by these things. Where is it fought? It's fought when we're picking out movies to watch or to go see. It's fought when we're going to an opera and deciding which opera we're going to see or perhaps be a part of. It's fought in the music we listen to. It's fought in the books we read, in the games we play, in the, the way we use the Internet. Godly purity keeping us from being defiled and muddied and sullied and dirtied because that's not what Jesus saved us for. That's not what He died for. He died for the purpose of making us clean and giving us the ability to live in His power and to overcome those very things. What kind of filters do you use on your life to keep you from these impurities? Unfortunately, some of us are down to a couple of filters. One is, I'll do anything as long as nobody sees me at it or catches me at it. If I think they'll catch me at it, then I won't do it. You have to have a whole series of filters above that. Trust me. Because there's all kinds of times when you'll be sullied and nobody but God will see it. Another filter is, we've just given up and we say, okay, well... I'm just going to do whatever I darn well please. God doesn't care. God wants a pure church. He wants pure Christians, unsullied. Unsullied. All of these five things that Paul lists to Timothy, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, they're all interrelated. If we have a failure in one, it can affect the other. 
It can destroy us. What, what might destroy us in one place will destroy us in another. The direct effect, one with another. It's like a carefully planted garden that has to be tended and cared for. Just as carefully as it was planted, it has to be tended that carefully in our lives. Take heed to yourself, Timothy. Take heed to yourself. Then he says, take heed to the doctrine. Take heed to the doctrine. The spiritual battle that we are engaged in has a doctrinal reality as well. And I've been talking about doctrine. We've been talking about doctrine in the last three weeks. And I can't hammer home the importance of, of this to you enough. And I'm going to try to build it now for you to see how it's going to connect with you maybe very, very personally. We're at war. Spiritual war. And the doctrine that we have is part of our weaponry. And two things can happen in our lives. We can either take captives with our weaponry or we can lay down our weaponry and be taken captive. And it says it that plainly in the Scripture. Colossians 2 says, verse 8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Be careful. No one captures you with their lies, with their false doctrines. And in 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, Verse 5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. You're either taking captives or you're being taken captive. And it's directly connected to the truth that that's organizes and that leads us and that, that frees us whether or not you're one or the other, the captive or the captivator, or the captive or that's not the word, is it? The captive or the capturer? Okay. Thank, thank you. Um, it's a constant battle. The godly man is doctrinal. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How will you be transformed by the renewal of your mind? Do we plug you into something? Is it when you get slain in the spirit and the meeting somewhere? You fill your mind with the truth of God and your mind is transformed and the lies are pushed out. They're the, the false thoughts, the wrong thoughts are captivated. And you become doctrinal. You, you take this truth and you wield it like a sword in your own mind. In your own heart. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed Accurately handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2. Handling the word. Wielding the sword. So there are obvious questions for all of us. The simple questions, the easy questions. Do we read our Bible? Do you read your Bible? 
We have Bibles all over. I mean, how many Bibles do you have in your house? I'll bet we have eight Bibles in our house, and I probably have eight more in my office. They're available, aren't they? Do we read the Bible? Do we attend and participate in Sunday school class where God's truth is proposed to us and taught? Do you avail yourself of the opportunity of going to the men's breakfast again to have fellowship with your brothers and to hear God's Word? How about the women's Bible study? Do you go to those and participate? These are the obvious questions, aren't they? And I know you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I've had this kind of success or this kind of success or maybe I've failed. Maybe I've failed. But even if we're ones who are coming to these meetings and gathering knowledge for ourselves, even if we're accumulating truths in our lives and gathering them in our heads, what kind of useful application, what kind of powerful application are we putting them to? The Hebrews were told, by this time you should be teachers, but you've become dull. We've been filling your heads. You should be teaching other people, but you're dull. When will you join the battle? Well, you think, well, okay. The battle, that's for the pastors and the elders, isn't it? I mean, that's what we pay them for. The ones we pay. That's for the pastors and the elders. Isn't that the battle for them? We'll let them fight. We'll cheer them on just so long as they don't run anybody through that we're particularly fond of with their sword. Right? If they happen to slice somebody that we're fond of, then we'll, well, maybe we'll be angry with them or resent them a little bit. Maybe you quote Scripture sometimes to people. Don't be offended by what I'm going to say, but maybe you're going to need to be offended by what I'm going to say. Maybe you quote Scripture to people. But you know, the Mormons quote Scripture to people, and the Muslims quote Scripture to people, and the politicians quote Scripture to people, and even Satan isn't adverse to quoting Scripture once in a while. There's more to this battle. There's more to the wielding of the sword than just the quoting of Scripture. Just some mild application. Just some platitudes and some, some, some clean words. It's one thing to quote some Scripture. It's another thing to take the sword of God's Word and drive it into the heart of somebody right at the time when their breast is exposed and you know it will do the absolute best good. And you know that by doing so, you may absolutely cause them to reject you forever. But you know that there's no good for them unless that sword goes deep into their heart. It's not just for the pastors. You are supposed to be armed with God's Word. And it has application that's real and powerful. And the victory is a victory for God's glory. And the victory is a victory for the souls of the people that you use it on. It's scary. You look at that sword laying there, it's scary. It's sharp. Somebody could get hurt if you pick that thing up, right? It could do some damage. You might be afraid to touch it. 
What's funny to me is that when we get angry, we'll cut people all to pieces with our tongues, won't we? We'll just chop them all to pieces with our tongues. We'll bite them this way and bite them that way, maybe in their presence, maybe behind their backs. But when it comes to taking God's Word and applying something to them that will save their souls, we're afraid to touch it, to pick it up. We're afraid to wield it. It's given for us for that purpose. Someone might get hurt. You might say, well, this is a good time to quote Scripture. So you open your Bible and you grab Jesus' words, uh, those who take up the sword will perish by the sword. Right? And you know that's not what he meant. That's not what he's talking about. Guess what? Every one of us, if we get God's grace applied to our lives, every single one of us is going to be slain by his word. Our fleshly, carnal hearts are going to be pierced through by the Word of God so that we can be born alive and afresh in a true life, a new creation by the power of Christ. We have to take our sword out. My wife sometimes takes out the sword. And she kind of, sometimes she timidly picks me with it. Sometimes she just... Right? What we want is a safe battle. We want a battle where nobody's going to get hurt. We want a battle that's not too tiring, where we can sit in the lounge chairs and sip some colorful sodas, drinks, and relax. This isn't the battle that we're called to. What will happen if you pick up your sword? What will happen if you pick up and start wielding the Word of God well, immediately you will become a target. Because the one who would live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago? And the man who picks up the Word of God and starts behaving and applying it doctrinally will be persecuted. When you pick up the sword, you will start to see who your enemy is clearly. And you may not see who your enemy is clearly you or someone you are very fond of may love one of these things as a for instance. Okay? You may love to watch uh, Holy Spirit television and you may love the glitter and glitz of the television shows that are run by people who are, who are uh, name it, claim it, health and wealth creatures. You may love those things. Or you may have a friend who loves them dearly. And you know what? God's Word is going to show you. When you pick it up, you're going to say, okay, wow, look at those inconsistencies with that group. And you're going to either have to cut off that part of your body that loves that programming or those kinds of teachings, or you're going to have to turn to the loved one who loves them, your mother or your wife or your husband or somebody. You're going to have to turn to them and you're going to Take that sword and you're just going to. And you're going to say, but this is what God's Word says. And immediately what will happen? They'll either hear and be joyful at what you've done, or they'll be furious with you. 
How about the anonymity of the cyber church? You may love the anonymity of the cyber church. I guess, I don't know, maybe you don't know what I mean by that. Tim was talking about this recently. I can't remember when. It was in a sermon, I think. He was talking about the church that's, you know, the drive-in church where you don't have to know anybody. It's all anonymous. You pick up the sword of God's Word and you see that that's not what the church was intended to be. You may like it. Someone you are very fond of may like it. And you may have to go to them for their own good and for the glory of God's truth and show them the truth. And it's going to be like you piercing them with a sword. You may like groups that are, are opposed to authority. There are many groups calling themselves Christians who are opposed to the authority of the church. And many of them, we call them parachurch. Not all parachurch groups are opposed, but many of the parachurch groups out there are opposed to the authority of God's church. And you may love some group. But when you grab a hold of God's Word and you lift it up and you see what His Word says about His church, and you see what His Word says about the authority that He's put in place, it may be time for you to take your sword and cut that off of your, of your body. Remove that from you. Or it may be time for it to go to somebody who you dearly love and say, you know, I'm very grateful for what this organization has done, but guess what? They've rejected God's authority. They've rejected the church. Sometimes the sword is used for pruning one another. Sometimes it's used to kill or expose a wolf. Knowing when to do which is a matter of discernment. But we have to take up our sword. You have to pick up your sword. And you can never put it down again. If you haven't yet taken up God's Word and started applying it in your life and in the lives of the people around you, you must do it. And you can never put it down. It must be welded to your arm. Sometimes when we go to the doctor or after the examination, the doctor will say something to like this to us. He probably never says it to you, but he might say something like this to me. David, you need to watch what you eat. Now, I don't mind it when the doctor says that to me because that's a pretty general thing, isn't it? Watch what I eat, sure. I'll watch it from the plate to the fork to the mouth. But if the doctor comes to me after the examination and he says, David, you cannot ever eat cheesecake again. Now, he's just plain meddling, isn't he? That's meddling. What I'm trying to do this morning is to talk to you about cheesecake. This is meddling. This is where we apply God's truth to ourselves personally, directly, intimately in our lives. If we are going to be godly, we have to make this application and many more besides. Now, in closing... I want to encourage you. 
because I know meddling is not always encouraging. Where does the power for godliness come from? Does it come from you? We've talked about this, I think, every week that we've, that we've preached. Are you going to muster up the power for godliness? Are you going to... I'm going to be godly. This morning I wake up and I resolve to be godly. 2007, godly year. Is that going to be you? You can't do it. All of these things I said to you this morning about speech and conduct, love and faith, purity, you can't do it. Timothy couldn't do it. Not with his strength. Not, not as Timothy. Not as Timothy the man in the flesh. And neither can you and neither can I. The only way that we will be godly is to receive from the one who is godly, Jesus Christ, the power for godliness. And He extends that power to us. He extends it to you. He extends it to me. We are His children. We are the sheep of His pasture. Right? He wants to give us godliness. He wants to give us this power. He wants to give it to you. He wants to give it to me. You will not be the same ever again. Ever again. And in that power, you will see fruit in your life that you have never seen before. You will see your family members confess faith in Christ. You will see your neighbors profess faith in Christ. You will see God work in your life with the power that Jesus gives you in godliness. Like you never have before. Discipline yourselves. We must discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Let's pray.